Tonight we come to Zechariah chapter 10, and this chapter is very closely connected to the previous chapter. They flow one from another. There's only a very subtle distinction in, in what is going on. And the main context to keep in mind comes to us in Zechariah nine sixteen. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his head. And as we recall, this is speaking of the Lord's great intention to bless his people. Such a great and marvelous contrast to the prophets that were just before the time of the exile, if you were to read, for instance, Jeremiah, and God is stating his intention to judge his people, stating his intention to bring them to nothing, to destroy them. To If there's any source of strength, any source of goodness, any good thing that they have, the Lord has stated his intention to thwart these things, to judge them, to discipline them, to send them into exile. And instead now, what a beautiful intention. He's going to bless his people. This work, this labor of love that he has, he's going to do it because he's going to make them into this beautiful crown for his, his own joy. Now, so in chapter 9, he stated this intention, and now in chapter 10, he's going to tell us how he's going to do it. How is he going to bring about this wonderful blessing? Well, he's going to provide for us in all the ways that are needed for his people to be blessed. Gathering them, leading them, blessing them, strengthening them, all the things that are necessary for that to happen in the current very low state of his people. He's going to do those things. And so I haven't really come up with a very clever title. I've just called it The Lord Will Provide. So we think of that great title, Jehovah Jireh, and how it is that this applies uh, in this, this wonderful instance here in Zechariah chapter 10. And the four points are that I will gather, I will lead, I will make it to rain, I will strengthen. I will gather, I will lead, I will make it to rain, and I will strengthen. So first, I will gather. Verse 8, I will whistle for them and gather them. There I will redeem them, and they shall increase as they once increased. Now, as a reminder, if you didn't understand, if you didn't uh, get the sort of map of the situation as is going on here in the, the time after the exile, yes, they've been brought back, but where are the people? It's only a minority of them that are actually in the land. And the problem is that the people are scattered to the four winds. They're everywhere. That was, again, the intentional uh, policy of the Babylonian Empire to scatter these people so that they could not uh, be together and gather strength. In fact, to do the sort of things that the Lord wanted them to do. They wanted them to be mixed and weak and helpless. So they're scattered. What needs to happen, the very first thing that needs to happen is that the Lord would gather the people. They're not in a place right now where they can be blessed in any great way. The Lord sort of had them on life support, as it were, in Babylon uh, sometimes people misinterpret verses like in Jeremiah where he says that you should go and build houses and, and, uh, and do that. It was a temporary provision for them. That was not the place of, of great blessing. That was not God's great project to transform Babylon or anything. It was just a provision for them to remain alive until he could bring them back into the land. And this is where he wants to bring them. This is the place where he's going to bless them. But first he's got to gather them. Well, How? He says, I'm going to whistle for them. I'm going to whistle for them. Now, you can think of that in two ways, but I think the first and most powerful one is just to think how easy it is for God to do things that he determines to do. 
He doesn't need to go into great detail in some sense. He's determined to do it. He is going to find a way to do that. I, I'm sometimes amazed at one of the um, various objections that are made to God's account of how things happened in, in the olden times, particularly, say, for instance, the flood. You say, well, how did he get all the, the animals on the ark? And it's true. It's something to think about. But most of those, many of those animals were mortal enemies, one with another, and they, they would not have simply come onto the ark. Well, the answer is the Lord obviously got involved in a supernatural way, and he, in essence, whistled and brought them onto that ark. That is his way, that is his business, and he can do such things. We have a picture of that in Sodom and Gomorrah as how is it that he got his people out of Sodom? It wasn't because they were so clever. Even the ones that he had appointed for life, they needed more than a little bit of help of getting out of there. And eventually, the angel just grabbed Lot's hand and brought them out. And no doubt the Lord is able to do that. Well, so he simply whistles. He, simple, he summons his people. But the second aspect of what we think about when he says he's going to whistle for them is it gives a suggestion about the means of grace. It gives us an idea of how they work. It's like a parent on a, maybe a, a busy, crowded street, and there are children everywhere. They're playing, and a parent calls out or whistles even to their own children, and the children come. How is that? Well, because the the parents are able to communicate to their children, and the children hear the voice. They hear the signal from their own parents, and they come back. They return. They come. And that's, in essence, the way the word of God works, as to gather God's people. Those who are God's children respond. Uh, John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He speaks into a crowd of of animals, in this case, in the the pen. There are goats there, and there are sheep. And God speaks with his voice, the word of God, and the sheep come to him, because they know the voice of their master, the the voice of their shepherd. And that's how it works. He's going to gather the people. He's going to whistle to them using his word, and they will come. Now, of course, there's a complexity here because the people were then, the reason why they were scattered at that point is because of the Babylonian captivity. They were not just there, again, on holiday. They were there because they were enslaved. And the, answer, the question is, how are they going to escape their enslavement? Well, the answer is, I will redeem them. I will redeem them. You see, this is not just merely a matter of communication. It's not just merely a matter of getting word out to people. It's okay to come back. There is a cost involved of getting them back. And God says that he will bear this cost, that he will redeem his people. Of course, we could well spend the rest of this sermon and every other sermon on the glories of how that happened. But we should remind ourselves that this was done because God intended to bless his people God said he's going to bear the cost of it in his redemption, and therefore he sent Christ to die for us. These people, what brought them, by the way? What what was the reason why these people? We said it's no simple matter because this this is the Babylonian captivity. They have been brought against their will to them. They are enslaved. How is it that God is just able to bring them out? Well, beyond that, why are they there in the first place? Because of their sin. Because of their sin. Well, all that is pointing to the reality of the the debt that we owe God. All that is pointing to the reality of the the slavery that we're in to, to sin as fallen sinners. 
And there is no way that God can simply bring us to himself apart from there being redemption, apart from that cost being borne. Someone has to pay for our sins. We're not, the, the admission price to heaven is in essence the redemption price from hell. And God himself says, I will pay it. What is it going to cost? Well, of course, the price is infinite. There is no price. Theoretically, if all the billionaires in the world would lay on the table all of their many, many billions and trillions, yes, trillions of dollars that they have, they could not among themselves buy the redemption of even one human soul. Jesus Christ, in his infinite worth as the eternal Son of God, when he laid down his life on the cross, that is the price, the only price that would do it. And God says, I'm going to redeem them. And so he did. He's going to call for them. He's going to redeem them as in this whole process of gathering. And then he says, they shall increase as they once increased. That's a wonderful effect then of gathering God's people because he intends to do something with them. He's going to gather them to himself and he's going to increase because in their gathering together, then, of course, one generation will go to next. And from one generation to the other, they're going to get more and more and more. Reminded of how even in the nation of Egypt, the reason why it is they were so afraid of the people is because under the blessing of God, those people increased so much from one generation to the next. So that as the centuries wore on, they became much mightier, even, at least in the minds of Pharaoh, than the Egyptians themselves. And they will increase as they once increased. Now, no doubt, the people then at this point thought that the glory days were gone forever. They would look back in the history which they had, the history which we now read about, the days, the glorious days of maybe they looked back at Joshua, maybe they looked back at, at Samuel and of David and of Solomon and said those days are gone forever. But God says that they're going to increase in the land just like it used to be in the good old days. Now, as to how that's going to happen, the details, that's the other points we're going to talk about. But in one sense, all we need to say about that is Matthew 19, 26. With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. How is it that God is going to gather his people? How is it when the forces of atheism and the forces of, of secularism are so strong in this nation, when the church is at such a low ebb, how is it ever possible that he will gather his people in such a circumstance. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And he will simply whistle, and they will come. Secondly, it says, I will lead. Verse 2, the idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies, and they tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. That is a statement, of course, of the problem with regard to leadership. Because there are other sources of, quote, leadership out there, but there are bad leaders. There are leaders that are going to lead the people astray. That is precisely their problem. That is what has been their problem all these many years, is all of these things. They are listening to these idols and all their delusions. They are listening to these diviners and these lies, these false prophets speaking the imagination of their own heart. And in particular, they offer false comfort. They comfort in vain. Now that's what it says in Jeremiah 6.13, because from the least of them even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness, and from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Those are the sources of truth. Those are the, the spiritual leadership that God had given the people, prophets and priests, and both of them had a teaching role. Both of them had a, a function by which they conveyed the word of God to the people, but, but both of them 
in their sin and rebellion and wickedness were not doing those things or telling them lies. And one of the crucial aspects of the lies is what it goes on to say in verse 14 of Jeremiah 6. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And that is the worst thing about every false religion in the world today. The worst thing about every false form of Christianity because they are saying the same thing. Peace, peace. They are saying that you are, you have salvation, you have peace with God through these rituals, through these false beliefs, through these transactions, and so the rest of these things. They tell people that they're okay, they're in a good situation spiritually, when nothing could be further from the truth. And how many people are there? around us who think they're in a perfectly good situation. I think of those, even as we did our invitations not so long ago and went from door to door and we, in essence, were offering them the pathway to life, the invitation to everlasting life through Christ and to the place where God meets with his people here. And some of them said, no thanks, I already have a religion, meaning I already have that which you are inviting me to. They have heard that from someone. They've heard that from a lying prophet, from a lying priest, who have told them, have healed their wound slightly, and have told them, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Well, the result of all these things, the result of it is that the people wind their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd, no true shepherd there is. There may be false shepherds, but no true. And that is the great problem. When we think of the problem that God is trying to overcome, the the thing that he is going to change about it is that these people are as sheep having no shepherd. To be leaderless is a very, very dire situation. We don't always think so because in our wonderfully safe, we praise God for the safety that we yet have physically in this, this nation, all of its great Christian heritage yet being with us. But we don't think so much of that because we live in a very safe world. But if you live in a dangerous world, there is nothing worse than to be leaderless. The thing that is required in a dangerous environment above everything else is that you have good and competent leaders. You know, Numbers 27 goes, uh, this is Moses speaking. He says to the Lord, this is towards the end of his life, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. You know, of course, that Moses for many years tended sheep. That's what he was. And in his preparation for this great work, after he was a prince of Egypt, he was sent to go be a shepherd for a long time. And he knew what a terrible thing it would be for this people to be as sheep having no shepherd. He had compassion upon them. And what he did is he prayed and asked the Lord and interceded that he would, in fact, grant them a leader. And he did that. He sent them Joshua. Well, the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, also has compassion on the people. In Matthew 9.36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Why? Why? It wasn't funny enough, of course, we know that this is connected with the miraculous feeding. This is at that same time. But it wasn't because that they were hungry. He did not look out at them and say, these people are materially deprived. And that was the greatest reason for his compassion. The, the reason for the compassion was that they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. It is not God's design for us to be without a shepherd. In his goodness and times of blessing, He gives us 
good shepherds, good leaders, in order that we might go in the way of blessing, in order that we might be as the shepherd, the good shepherd in Psalm 23, to lead us beside the still waters and to give us the green pastures. Now, as I mentioned, of course, it was not that there were no one, none, none whatsoever who were appointed as shepherds. There were shepherds at that point. They just were not doing their jobs. And in verse 3, my anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the goat herds, for the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah. And you can hear a lot more about what God thinks about negligent shepherds in Ezekiel 34. I have never preached such a fearsome uh, sermon as I once did with my fellow ministers on that, that issue. Uh, the Lord is not happy to summarize it with those who are appointed as shepherds and do not do their job because he cares about the sheep. He cares about you and I and wants us to be well led. And the solution for it is that the Lord of hosts will visit his flock. He will do it himself. He will come and visit the house of Judah and I will make them as his royal horse on the battle. From him comes the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler together. And God himself will undertake for these things, and he himself will provide this leadership. We know, of course, that comes in Christ. And he, from him comes the cornerstone. Christ is our cornerstone. He, this also related to the tent peg, the battle bow, all these things summed up in the wonderful leadership that Christ himself provides for his people. And as thankful as we are for good human leadership, we know that ultimately we are appointed to Christ. Ultimately, that is a great provision for the, for the sheep, is that Christ is the great shepherd over us. And the Lord is going to provide him. And third, besides providing good leadership, he's going to make it rain. Going back to the beginning of the chapter in verse 1, Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make it flashing floods. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. Now that principle of God giving rain operates on, on more than one level. On one, it's just the mere physical rain. We cannot forget that we are, we are material beings. We mentioned that, yes, the spiritual is more important ultimately than the material, but we are yet material beings. We require provision, and we need the, the physical rain to do it. And so in Deuteronomy eleven thirteen, God promised, It shall be, if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, and your, your oil. Now we just have one word for rain in English. Uh, the Hebrews actually had two, well three actually, one more, a general term for any kind of drops coming from the sky, and then a specific one for those that came in the autumn, and another specific one for those who came in the spring, because their crops began at one point, and then they were brought to completion at another. They were made, the ears of corn were, were filled and made fruitful by the latter rain. And if you had crops out there without the latter rain, God did not provide that second time, then you wouldn't have much to eat. Well, we need that physical rain, but beyond that, agricultural prosperity is used as a symbol for all that God gives his people. 
And I think that's very much in keeping with what he had said in Zechariah 9.17, just a few verses before, for how great is the goodness and how great is its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. It's very clear he's talking about much more than just that they eat well. He's not just talking about good food. It's saying that he's blessing his people. They're in good condition. And he is going to do it. He is going to provide for them through this rain. He's going to make it rain. And I want you to see, and he speaks, how great is his beauty. Don't ever forget that God has a special interest in you. Don't ever forget that he wants to make you beautiful. That is his object. You're not, if your desire, young ladies, is to be beautiful, that is not something that is contrary or against God's desire for you. He wants you to be beautiful in the very best ways that you possibly can be. And young men likewise, to be glorious indeed, to be brought into conformity with his own perfections. He wants those things for you. And he is going to provide, he promises, to make that possible. How great is his goodness, how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive and new wine, the young women. And this ultimately, of course, is spiritual. Now that comprehensive blessing, it certainly includes the word of God. And there needs to be that sort of rain, doesn't there? Uh, a beautiful picture of that using the vocabulary comes in Hosea 6.3. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as a morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. That's what the knowledge of the Lord is. That's what the knowledge of the Lord brings. The knowledge of the Lord brings great blessing. Apart from him, what blessing do they have? That's prob- precisely the problem with his people in the past. They perished for a lack of the knowledge of God. They perished for a lack of the preaching of the word of God. The priest didn't, didn't preach, they didn't teach. The prophets spoke lies and there was a famine of the word of God. But now God says, I intend to bless you and I'm going to bring down the rains. And the knowledge, the land will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And great blessing will come from it. No blessing can come apart from it. And this, by the way, I think, is a way that we should think. That whole idea I just mentioned about this picture that we have in rain. And that there being a former rain and a latter rain. And then what happens next? A harvest. I think that's the way that we need to think about our situation until the end of the world. That there was a former rain. And we are indeed praying that there would be a latter rain. And at the end, there will be the judgment. That's what James 5, 7 says. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. We need to be patient. He is coming. Some people think because he's delaying, he's never going to come. But that's not the case. He is coming. Now, here's what the... Now, but James is kind of helping us to see that. Be patient. Now, let me give you a picture that will help you to, to understand God's perspective on this, on this delay that we're now experiencing until his, his return. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. And what we are told here is that hasn't happened yet. That the delay is happening because God intends to bring both the former and the latter rain upon his crop. Because he is not going to bring the world to a premature end. He's not going to come before those crops are brought to maturity. Now no one knows the time when that is going to happen. No one knows the number of the elect. No one has any idea of how these things. But God does. 
And when we think about the reality that God, that the, the, the return has not happened, I frankly would have been glad for it to have happened in between the services today. It didn't. But the, uh, the attitude, the attitude that we should bring to it is that God is like a farmer and he's waiting for that latter rain to come and the fullness of the fruition of his crop. And not one grain of wheat is going to be missing when he does bring that harvest. Well, the Lord says he's going to make it rain. Fourthly, he says, I will strengthen them. Now, we, we've gone through this list. I've, I've changed the order of the chapter in order that we have it in a more logical way. First, he's going to gather us. Then he's going to lead us in the way we should go. He's going to bring that rain so we continue to grow. But it's not just that God's people are going to live quietly in the, the land and grow on, on their own and sort of just grow without opposition because there's going to be enemies, you see, that, are, that need to be fought. And if there are enemies that are going to need to be fought, battles that are need, need to be fought and won, then they'll need to be strong for that. And that's one of the problems, that they obviously were not strong in the day that their enemies came to call before. There were many other times, you know, that the people of Israel withstood their enemies. In fact, they had great victories over them. Sometimes it was because they themselves were so numerous and so many and so strong, and other times it's just because their faith was so great. And the Lord himself provided marvelously, undertook for them. And, and, but neither of those things were the case, of course, at this time. They were not strong when the Babylonians came to take them away. But now the Lord says that things are going to be different. It says in verse 5 that they will be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. <coughs> And that picture is not of a sort of very hard-fought contest in which two evenly matched opponents are fighting, but of an almost invincible army sweeping down, and nothing can slow them down, nothing can stop them. And I incidentally think that that is precisely the way the Lord pictures his church today. That's the way he looks at his church. Yes, he sees our weakness, but when he sees us as we are in his hands, he sees an invincible army an army that is strong and like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets of the battle. And you know what's going to happen? Remember, it says that the Lord is going to trample Satan shortly under your feet. The Lord's going to do it, but it's going to be under our feet. This is the sort of the army that the Lord has, you see. You may not believe it, but you're part of it. That's the way we should think of it. Now, he says he's going to make them that way. We know that they're not that way themselves. He's going to make them to be mighty men. It's just like the situation with Gideon. When the angel comes, the angel of the Lord says, Oh, you mighty man of, of God, as he's, of course, you know, hiding. He's no mighty man of God, but he was made to be that. And that's what the Lord is going to make us. And the, the, the question is, how is it? How is it that they're going to be so mighty? How is it they're going to be so strong? They shall fight because the Lord is with them. That is the reason why. Because God is with them. God is with us. Who can be against us? It worked in all times of, of history. And the Lord says he will fight with them. Now I'll just, again, as a kind of illustration. It is a well-known fact that soldiers will fight to the kind of leader that they have. If the leader is a coward, they will turn tail and run. Even if they're well-trained, even if they're well-equipped, even if there are more of them than the enemy, if their leader is a coward, they will act the same way. If, however, their leader is a man of unshakable resolve, who is fearless in the face of danger, so they will be as well. 
And there is none better. It is a great blessing to have good human leadership. There is none better to lead than the Lord himself. He is, of course, utterly fearless and has resolved. No one can doubt. Reminded even of the situation we saw this morning at the end of Luke chapter 9, that the Lord set his face to go to Jerusalem. His resolve was utterly unshakable. We wish maybe the disciples would have lived up to the fullness of their leader on that day, but they eventually did. They eventually shared that same resolve, and they eventually were then granted similar victories in their own service of the Lord before they went into glory. Well, he himself will be with them. Verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them away, for I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. That is the wonderful thing about it. He's going to strengthen. He's going to bring them back. He's going to save them. He's going to have mercy on them. And the funny thing is, it'll be as though I'd never cast them aside. Again, our ambitions, our thoughts sometimes in this land are very low because we understand how God has cast us aside. We understand that we rightly, for the sins of our fathers and indeed for ourselves, that the church in this land is nowhere what it was 150 years ago, not even close. It is a pale shadow of itself. And we wonder whether it is ever to be anything like it again. Well, we don't know the ins and outs of God's providence. We don't know his particular plan. But one thing we should be absolutely clear about is that he certainly is able to do it. He is speaking to this very scattered man. On the king of Babylon's list of important peoples he's conquered, I don't think the Israelites actually were all that high on the list. They were just another random ethnic group that he had scattered to the four winds. Now, of course, in God's providence, he had let them go as well. We know that's a wonderful long story of, of how that happened. But they didn't look like much to anyone else nor to themselves. In fact, they probably were like those spies who went into the land. Do you remember what they thought? We're like grasshoppers. The people in the land, they are like giants and we are like grasshoppers. But he says, Lord says, I will bring, uh, um, it will be as though I had never cast them aside. For I am the Lord their God. He's great, and he can make his people to be great like him. Now, all this is summarized in verse 12. So I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in his name. They're not going to be able, you're not going to be strong. Their people back then are not going to be strong just for their own reasons. You know, I, I sometimes have heard um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me being used in, in all kinds of crazy context. And people imagine maybe that, that this applies to them, you know, winning at some football game played on the Lord's Day. And it's, it's ironic, isn't it? It's, it's not that at all. That's not what is meant. What is meant is if you're on the Lord's errand, if you're doing the work that God has called you to do, if you are in the way, in the king's highway of righteousness, doing as he has called us to do, even when it is difficult, then God can make us to do it. I will strengthen them in the Lord, and they shall walk up and down in his name, says the Lord. Well, that is God's comprehensive, his plan, his comprehensive plan for the blessing of his people. He says he's going to bless them, and he's going to do it. He's going to gather them from the four winds. 
And when he brings them in, then he's going to lead them himself. And he's going to point beyond that good human leaders for them. And he's going to make it rain. He's going to make them to increase and to grow in the land. And then he's going to strengthen them for all the many battles because there will be many battles to face. And of all those things, then, if we move to application, there are many things in there for that we ought to be praying for. Something I didn't talk about much in that, that section we were just on is that he's going to hear them. He says that I will hear them. And I think that we need to pray when the Lord gives us such a promise. What are the things that we can pray for? Well, first, we can pray for material provision. Now, we don't um, take that for granted. I said material security is not a reason for us not to follow Christ. But those who do follow Christ, there is every reason that we ought to pray for material provision for God's work and for the things that he's called us for. We ought to pray for material provision. Don't take it for granted. We need it. God has given it. We are thankful for what he has given to this church. And we pray that he ever would continue to do that. And there are many, many things that we'd like to do as a church. And every one of them requires finance. Every one of them requires money to do them. At the basic level, one day, of course, we are, our plan is to be fully self-sufficient. We are so thankful for our partnership with our American churches. And we're, in some sense, no hurry to no longer be in that situation. It's so wonderful to be uh, in it together with them. And we love that, that kind of partnership. <laughs> But one day, of course, we seek to be fully self-supporting. We seek to have church plants, many, not just one. Soon enough, we're going to be talking about other names because Hexham will be, we pray, in the past tense, as, as we are in the past tense now with regard to us being a mere church plant. And we, in order for us to do that, we have to be financially strong. We have to have the resources necessary to do that. The church building, yes, we'd like that someday. We know that it is ordinarily God's, God's way of dealing with churches to provide a permanent place, a, a testimony uh, to that, the fact that he is here in this place and that everyone might know that there is such a place to hear the word of God. Uh, there are any number of things I could mention. Internship programs to bring up the next generation of leaders in the church, expanding the seminary, you name it. Um, and all those things... We need money to do them. And God can give it. It's very, it's very simple. God can do it. He has and he will. But we need to pray that he would do that. Secondly, we need to pray for more gathering. As I was thinking about these things, I suppose one way to, just to categorize or to kind of make it in a big comprehensive sense what the church's work is to do is that we're either gathering the elect or we're strengthening them. Yeah, that's pretty much what we're doing. We're gathering the elect and we're strengthening them. Now, good church, now, by the way, I should say, of course, usually we're doing both at the same times, but sometimes we're doing more than the other. Sometimes there's more emphasis on one and uh, some on the other. But healthy churches are good at doing both. Healthy churches are good at doing both. We know that there are some churches that make it their business in life only to be about evangelism. And the poor people who are there think that, that the only people that, that, that the leadership don't seem to care about are the ones that they've already got. The only ones they care about are the people they don't have. And they're never fed. They're never given any good, solid meal because in their minds, the only way to gather people is to give some very simplistic presentation of the gospel over and over and over. Well, we don't want to be like that. 
But nor do we want to be like the churches who, who imagine that the only thing that they ever have to do is to make the absolute best out of the people that they already have. Um, uh, quality over quantity taken to its, its greatest extreme so that there's no, no thought or significant effort into bringing people from the outside in. Well, we don't want to be like either of those. I think that there's a beautiful symmetry and balance that is seen in God's comprehensive plan for his people to be found in Zechariah 10. And it involves both gathering and growing and strengthening. And we pray that, and we ought to pray for it. Well, anyways, but on, so on the particular things, if you're making a number, one was for the material provision, two is for gathering. And if we think again for, for Christian Explored, I, I really do want to sound the, the warning on that. Um, we don't have many prospects at the moment, and it would be such a shame. Uh, I think every year the Lord has provided those to come, and ultimately he's provided those who have remained with us, uh, every year there's been at least one. And we pray that it would, it would happen one more year. And we need to bring people. We need to have, God needs to help us to invite. And we pray for that gathering. We pray for our other efforts at evangelism. And we're thankful that there are more, there are more now than there used to be. Um, but we pray that the Lord would bless those invitations, those, um, the, the, the things at the Metro Center and other places that we want to do them. We need to gather people. Um, third, of course, to pray for strengthening, because the world does not need any more weak churches. I say that again, the world doesn't need any more weak churches than it's already got. It, it already has enough of them on, on life support. I mean, if you were to think about it in human terms, you're looking at a country that has 90% of its churches are in intensive care hooked up to some machine. And they're not in a position then to withstand the onslaught in this day. Sadly, we're reminded that the reason why Islam, for instance, got as far as it did in places like North Africa. And you say, what happened? A couple of centuries ago, they had St. Augustine leading them. What happened? And the answer is that unfortunately in that day, they were very, very weak. They were on life support. They, they had departed in various ways from the purity of the gospel. There was much infighting and weakness, and they're not able to withstand. Well, we don't need any more weak churches And I would say, by the way, we don't need an infinite number of strong churches. If the Lord would only provide a certain number of strong churches in every place, in every every, sitting location of this nation, we would be much better off. Um, The church would, again, so the world needs strong churches. And I would say this too, the church doesn't need any more spiritual weaklings. The church has got more than enough of those. I'm thankful for how many are strong here. We ought always to be a place where the weak are most welcome. We're a hospital for sinners. We should think of ourselves in that way. But we've got to have doctors and nurses in order to do that. In order to welcome those sinners, we ourselves have got to be strong and we must constantly be in the process. If you're new, if the Lord has only recently brought you to faith, you're now in that process of growing. And we want you to be in the process of strengthening and tempering and being brought to be made useful in order that you might then work on and be of use for those who are coming next. We don't need any more weak churches. We don't need any more weak Christians. But we can pray for strengthening because I believe that the, that the Lord delights in making us strong. Do you believe that? Do you think that the Lord wants you to be weak? Now I'll say this. Now here's the important thing. You understand, we're not talking about strong in ourselves. In fact, sometimes that strengthening will require, sometimes that strengthening will demand that you be brought to the end of yourself. 
That is Paul's situation in 2 Corinthians 12.10. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So we have to accept that. So we don't mean to say that we are strong in ourselves. In fact, God forbid. But rather that through one way or another, through listening to the word of God, through sometimes great humbling, through trials, whatever, that God then makes us to be reliant upon his strength. That we walk in great faith, an unshakable faith and resolve on the promises of his word. So we pray for strengthening. And fourthly, we pray for victories to come from that. Because he strengthens us for a purpose, you see. He brings us in, he makes us to grow, he leads us, he strengthens us, but it is not just for show. It is because there actually are battles to be fought. Now the great battle has already been won. Christ has won. He said, it is finished. Satan's been kicked out of heaven. He has nothing on us. All the rest of those things. And what amounts is a long mopping up operation. But there are yet significant battles to be happening even in a mopping up operation. We know that that is our situation in this world. And there are spiritual battles to be fought and won. Again, certainly not like jihadis. We're not talking about physical force. We're not talking about violence. None of that. We're talking about spiritual battles. And so many of them are against the flesh, the enemy within. Once you're made strong, then the Lord is looking for victories. He is looking for, he gives you opportunities in as you are able to have victories over the flesh, the enemy that is within. Some victories against the world, and I think no doubt we have more than enough opportunities. There are so many things that loom against us. Sometimes we don't know which one to, to, to pursue, uh, to make the, the alarm as great and as uh, terrible as it really is, because there are so many threats out there. Or, on the other hand, not to make people too afraid from these things, lest we, it overshadow everything else. But there is no doubt, there is no doubt that God's people are looking into the face of a storm. And the question is, uh, will we be strong in the Lord? We pray that we would be. Will there be victories? I think we have every reason to believe that there will be. And we should be looking forward to those days. And of course, above all, the devil himself. We know that we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and spiritual powers. Satan himself and all those who work for him. And we are thankful that not only will he, he be in the end defeated, not only will we trample on him in the end of time, but that even now, as part of this mopping up operation, that God gives us victories over him. And we look forward to that as well. And fifthly, and finally, we pray for a latter reign of the word of God. Because we have said that this is the thing that God gives. And for all the rest of those things to happen, in order for people to be gathered, in order for them to be led, in order for them to be blessed and to grow and to be strengthened, all those things, and for them to have these victories, there must be a great reign and outpouring of the word of God. And we need to pray for it. We don't need it all to begin to take for granted the blessings that we have, we pray for much, much more. We pray, in some sense, of course, for the continuation of good things. We don't take them for granted. We know that only God himself provides his word. And those who take it for granted, he sometimes takes it away from them. But rather we pray that there be an outpouring of the word of God and of the spirit in these days, in this place. We ask this in Christ's name.